Okay. I'll introduce you. Okay. Uh, welcome to the October session of the 2014 Geriatric Mental Health Series, Health and Human Spirit, presented by Jeannie Childs. The Northern New England Geriatric Education Center and our activities are funded by the Health Resources and Services Administration, also known as HRSA. Um, this funding allows us to offer this program to you at no charge. Our work is to enhance the care of older adults by offering a comprehensive interdisciplinary education program targeted to the healthcare workforce. We emphasize evidence-based best practices in geriatric care. In order for you to receive educational credit for this program, you must be signed in legibly, so be sure you, um, you've signed the attendance sheet if you are at a remote site. If, you cannot, if we cannot read your handwriting, we cannot award you the credit. Um, if you're watching online from your desktop and do not have a site liaison, you need to complete a form online very soon after the program. The email address is geriatriced at dartmouth.edu. Let me spell that, G-E-R-I-A-T-R-I-C dot E-D at D-A-R-T-M-O-U-T-H dot E-D-U. Um, today, if you need, the, you need to fill this out today, if, um, and if you need the link to do this form, you, or you can call the number 603-653-3443. Finally, you should have received a form that tells you how to obtain your continuing education credits and contact hours online. Be sure to keep this sheet so um, that you can refer to it later. If you have cell phones, please silence them now if you haven't already. Uh, remote sites, your audio should be muted. If you have a question during or after the presentation, please unmute your audio and get the speaker's attention by raising your hand or waving your hand. Uh, none of the planning committee members for the series, including today's speaker, have any influencing financial relationships to disclose, and there will be no off-label uses discussed. Um, finally, I'd like to introduce you to Jeannie. Jeannie Childs is a nationally board-certified chaplain, BCC, at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center. She provides care to individuals who are referred from the geriatricians at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center and others who come to the Aging Resource Center and suffer from feelings of loss, grief, isolation, loneliness, lack of purpose, diminished control, and other issues of aging. She leads support groups and is a frequent speaker at the Aging Resource Center and in the community on such topics as what spirituality got to do with it, you have the right to remain hopeful, the grit and grace of family caregiving, coming to terms with loss and change. Um, Jeannie is, a passionate, is very passionate in serving aging adults and helping them find within the power to meet their challenges and find peace. Jeannie? Okay. Well, we are talking about um, health and the aging human spirit today. Uh, we want to make sure that at the end of this you can recognize better what are challenges um, to patients, what their spiritual needs may be, and how they impact their physical and psychological well-being. And also learn a role that medical providers and clinicians can play in addressing underlying, underlying spiritual needs of patients. To start that, we're going to do a role play. 
This is an actual exchange between a medical provider, and um, I didn't give you guys copies of this yet. I'll give them to you in a minute. Um, an actual medical provider patient exchange that I witnessed, an actual one. So Bernie is gonna be Mrs. Wilson, and I'm going to be the medical provider. Hi, Mrs. Wilson, how are you today? Oh, I've been feeling down in the dumps. Well, we sure haven't had much sun recently. But about those pills I gave you? Uh, I can't, can't see that they've helped any. Well, they might need some time to kick in. Um, your weight is down, I see. Well, it's hard to cook for one. Don't have any reason since my husband died. Don't like to eat by myself. Well, we're going to have to get your weight up. I will arrange for a dietitian to talk to you. How is the family? Oh, my daughter's going through a difficult divorce. No, I don't believe in divorce. Oh gosh, I'm sorry to hear about that. The statistics are very bad these days. Um, what have you been doing lately? Oh, not much. I used to be active in church, but I can't get there now. No neighbors to take you? Oh, all dead or dying. I don't want to be the last leaf on the tree. Well, neither would I. I see your point. Well, what about hobbies? Uh, my eye problems have ruined everything. I don't see to do my hobbies. Hmm. Well, let me connect you with a good eye doctor. Maybe new glasses would help. So, some of you have copies of that, and I don't want to deprive you two either. But I also don't want you to look ahead. And I'd love it if you can interact with me at the remote sites and here, because what I'd like to talk about now is that dialogue. What did you think? Anybody? Well, in the beginning, you asked the right questions, but you didn't really, um, you didn't follow up on anything she said. Asked the really, right questions, but, you but didn't, really listening. didn't follow up on anything she said, okay? Any other points about that dialogue? Being the patient or the person you were talking to, I felt like you weren't really hearing what I was saying. Not hearing what she was saying. Not hearing it. Anything else? You just kind of had your agenda. You weren't trying to get to her agenda. So the, the provider had an agenda, and it wasn't her agenda. Why do you think, can you tell me some more about that? What was going on in the mind of the provider? I sort of felt like you had a checklist. These are the things I have to check with her. Checklist, weight, hobbies, family, okay. Fix it quickly. <laughs> Fix it quickly. Fix it quickly. How do you think the provider might have been feeling when he or she would be getting responses like, no, it doesn't help. Um, no, I, I can't cook for one. Um, no, family's not good right now. No, haven't been able to do anything lately. Like, oh my gosh, I've opened up a can of worms. I don't know what to do with it. Exactly. 
oh my gosh, I've opened up a can of worms, I don't know what to do with it. We have a medical provider who has medications and interventions that can help things on a physical level or on a medically diagnosed level. What were the kinds of things this woman was expressing? Emotional, social. Psychosocial, emotional, spiritual things. Um, providers today, what might they be feeling if someone says, I feel down in the dumps? Give them a de depression screen, get them on medication for depression. Um, Yes, the pills might need more time to kick in. Obviously, that was he'd already or she had already determined that. But it was all a medical intervention. In every one of these cases, it's a medical intervention. But the things the person is that's that are bothering this person are in this list. Loss. The husband seems to have died. That's what we can intuit from this. She's only cooking for one. She's got a lot of grief. She's lost her husband. She's got grief. Might not have the meaning and purpose that she used to have. Is isolated. Can't get out of the house. Can't go to church anymore. Nobody around to drive her. Is full of uh, friends who, I mean, her life is full of non-people anymore who have died. Maybe her own hope is diminishing. But she also doesn't have any ability to change her locale. She's living in her home. Um, has de definitely has um, not expressed regrets and, and resentments, but has re a, a difference in belief with her daughter. She doesn't believe in divorce, and now the whole family might be being pulled apart by a divorce that's maybe going to take grandkids away, daughter away, that kind of thing. And she has diminished control over the events in her life and possibly is looking at the end of life. She doesn't want to be the last leaf on the tree. What category do those things belong in? Well, they can be lumped into a category called spiritual distress. That's a hard category to define. So I've tried to do that on the next page of your handout. It's, a, it's an existential type of stress. Um, anything, and, and soul distress could really be defined most broadly, anything that arises from something that threatens your sense of well-being and your ability to respond positively to life changes. A lot of that happens because people, events happen to people that they have no control over and they don't like those events. Because when we're dealing with the, this population group, loss is ubiquitous. Change is ubiquitous. And there's not a pill for those things. This category of things can become a medical diagnosis, but most of them belong to the 80% of things that happen to human beings that, human beings that is, they're just life. You get resentments. 
because people don't treat you well. Well, you're not treated for resentment, by and large, unless it turns into a medical, mental health issue for you, and you begin to have some abnormal mental health issues. Um, diminished control is a fact of life, and yet it takes a great toll on the spirit of somebody. I kind of like to define the spirit as saying, it's the thing that makes you get out of bed in the morning and want to do something. It has a great deal of integration with the motivational center of the human being. It's meaning, purpose, and connection in life. In the field of chaplaincy, which is the field that I work in, those are the areas that we are listening for and are trained to have interventions for. I want to propose to you that they are everyone's business in healthcare, that we have to look for indicators of this, because if we don't, the person in front of us is at great risk for more complicated things to happen. Life can become much harder for that person. They can go in the hospital. And of course, in healthcare today, you want to hear about you know, keeping people from needing to be admitted to the hospital because it's a monetary thing. But I'm looking at it from the human interest and the human caring point of view, which is signs, indicators of spiritual distress are sitting in front of you every day. They were sitting in front of this medical provider at that appointment. They were as clear as the nose on your face and they were not addressed. So that woman's gonna go home and there can be physical and health risks that she is now susceptible to and which can undermine her overall well-being and her health and end up putting her in the hospital. So we need to address them. The first thing in addressing them is recognizing them. So you listen for such things as, I've been feeling down in the dumps. Can't see that the pills have helped. Don't have any reason to cook since my husband died. My daughter's divorcing. Don't believe in divorce. Used to be active in church. Can't get there now. Don't want to be the last leaf on the tree. Eye problems have ruined everything. Those are expressions of spiritual distress. Um, you might hear more, more overt ones like, I don't really have any purpose anymore. Um, what does it mean for me to get out of bed in the morning? There's no one who needs me. And here are some indicators of spiritual distress. Expressions of meaninglessness or hopelessness. The presence of prolonged or intense suffering inability to trust, intense anger, a sense of guilt or shame, concerns with moral or ethical aspects of care, unresolved feelings, things that are repeated over and over again. There was a lady I used to visit in the nursing home and she would constantly talk about a grandson who had disappointed her. And there was something in that for her that she could not resolve. Alienation or isolation from God or others, in the case of our Mrs. Wilson, living in isolation by herself, 
maybe going to lose her family even, because they might move away, because there's a divorce. Difficulty finding meaning in the midst of suffering. I'm sure that many of you have encountered that, if not daily, weekly. Beliefs opposed by family and friends, here in this case, the divorce issue. And the lack of identity and feeling dehumanized. I'm going to tell you a story about a woman who went through our health care system and um, there was an optional surgery, very expensive, that she could get, but the benefits, if it was successful, would be great. However, her age was also great and there were risk factors and she opted for the surgery. When she was brought into rehab, she woke up and said, damn. And then she refused to participate in any of the rehab. Countless hours of effort from the people at the rehab center, all the hours of, in, of uh, work done by the medical team, people asking her all the time, why won't you cooperate now? It took a little LNA who went and sat beside her in the evening to find out what was happening. And the key expression there is sat beside her and listened. And the lady shared with her that she agreed to the surgery because she did had hoped to die on the table. Isn't that an indictment of healthcare? There might have been countless conversations, just like Mrs. Wilson's, not picked up on, not followed. And here we had a very time-consuming and expensive intervention, which had she gotten spiritual care before the surgery might still have occurred, but the outcome would have been more successful because the underlying issue would have been addressed. So that's why I've put Don Kopeck's uh, quote at the bottom of this page, number three. Spiritual well-being is not just a piece of the pie. It's the plate. It's what motivates the individual. It's what's going to keep them going. Spirituality is everyone's business in healthcare. I put that on there too because a lot of people think it's not their business and I attributed it to myself but actually I didn't make it up, I just couldn't remember who did. So I thought I'd take responsibility for it and I believe it with all my heart that we all have to be paying attention to these indicators of spiritual distress so that we don't sabotage everything else we're doing and most especially the life of the person in front of us. Do you have any thoughts on that? Anybody? Feedback so far? Have you encountered this? I'm looking at lots of people sitting around tables and even some here and wondering what you're thinking. Do I have to push a button? Can you talk? Yeah, a lot of people talking, waving, waving their hands. Well, who, I but guess. They're, way, they're way back in the room. No, I don't think they're, yeah. no, they're not. Yeah. Um, okay. okay. Well, I, I have experienced this, um, Jeannie, in,
both caregivers living with someone with dementia and also people in the earlier stages of dementia, particularly where you have listed here the, you know, the loss is, is obvious in dementia, but also the meaning and meaning making. Mm -hmm. um, I found that that disease is, I, I think that's really key uh, to, yeah. to what you're saying and in our talks together that that, um, that disease and maybe just great suffering in general or just aging in general uh, really can sap meaning. Like what's the, what does this mean? And it's what's just it some all about? Yeah, there's some arbitrary yeah. disease has come in and taken over my entire life and um, feeling powerless. And the injustice of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, the unfairness of it. Why me? I took care of myself. You know, and that happens to accident victims. I mean, we might have had a beautiful runner running along the street, took perfect care of their body, mm -hmm. and they're hit by somebody, and then now they've got a life of complication. Um, well, those things do trauma to our souls. Yeah. And that's what needs to be addressed. That's the underlying thing um, for a person to go on. And let me tell you, I'm not making this up because I did literature searches of what are the consequences, mm -hmm. let's say, of resentments. And here are just a few of them. You pay the, the price repeatedly by bringing anger and bitterness into every relationship and new experience. It keeps you stuck. It causes unnecessary suffering. It creates a mind mindset which swallows you in your own bitterness and sense of injustice. We don't have a pill to get you better from that. Life may become so wrapped up in the wrong that you can't enjoy the present. It increases your chances of missing the good things in life. It can make you so mad that you'll have a car accident and compound the problems. It traps your precious energy in anger and hurt over things you cannot change. It adds to your emotional burnout, your emotional burden, and at the cellular level, it releases, and I believe it's cortisol, that is the um, the really bad ingredient for under undermining physical health, mm -hmm. um, the stress hormones, yep. Yep. burnout, depression, and anxiety. It makes you feel a lack of meaning and purpose. It makes you feel at odd with your spiritual beliefs. It causes loss of valuable connectedness with others. And here's the rub. Increased risk of heart disease. I mean, this is, there've been, there's been research on this. I didn't make any of this up. All of this has come out because of my literature search. Increased risk of heart disease, cancer, high blood pressure, muscle tension, and low immune response. So, that's what I mean by saying it's the plate, not just a piece of the pie. This can compromise everything. Um, so we can't ignore it. But then you and the med medical provider in that um, initial dialogue that we read, the role play, can say, well, what am I going to do? I've got 15 minutes with this person. She says she's down in the dumps. Am I go what am I going to say to that? Well, I didn't. I moved right on. I said, well, okay, um, what about the pills? <laughs> because that's the one thing I could do something about. Maybe up the dose. Look, her weight is down. 
consequence of her inner distress. Well, let's send you to a dietitian. But that's not going to solve it. Why isn't she eating? Grief. We have to solve it at the source of the problem. Well, how is someone who has 15 minutes with a patient going to open up that one? They're not. So I understand where everybody's coming from when you say, well, it's great to point it out, but what am I going to do about it? So why don't we go to that in the handout? Now let me see what time it is. Well, I think we've already, let's take, let's pause for a minute be, before we go to that and look at the, the things I provided for you on, on page four. The real risks to health are all things that I mentioned in that earlier list that's on the board here. Those are where the interventions have to start. So I am going to tell you that besides you, there are teams of people that do have interventions for these things. And we here at the Aging Resource Center, for example, have um, two groups that address loss and grief. One is for the newly bereaved. They're support groups. Um, we have one-on-one -on -one support for that. It's all free because the Aging Resource Center's um, mission in life is to support population health and help keep people out of the hospital and we recognize these as as risk factors so we have support groups isolation and loneliness loss of meaning loss of hope we have uh, a course uh, a support group called connection um, at special risk are family caregivers who can have all of these things simultaneously while they're also being physically exhausted. We have a caregiver support group. It's often an older, frail person taking care of another frail member of the family. Regrets and resentments. Um, we actually offer courses in building spiritual strengths. The quotes that I were read was reading to you from research come from a course I teach on forgiveness. But I don't use what's taught in church because it's taught in church and because this is a healthcare center. I use the research that we have on hand that I read to you that shows how it just doesn't make sense not to learn how to forgive, but how do you learn it? Well, there are some evidence-based techniques for learning forgiveness that actually work. And so that's where we address those things. Um, and then end of life, we actually have a support group here on, on storytelling, which is a life integration exercise. So yes, a group setting is a marvelous way to address it. If you don't have them available where you are, um, then it might be interesting to look at the possibility of starting some, and we'd be happy to work with you on that. Um, or many senior centers, and sometimes hospices have some group settings where they do try to tackle some of these spiritual issues. Um, the point is we have to address it. And I have discovered that group support groups are probably the most effective way. Um, they are not psychotherapy groups, but they are life event groups they validate the person's experience. They give the person a chance to express it. They bond with each other. They are self-empowered in this because as they hear other people grappling with these same things, they come up 
with solutions that, that, that have worked around the table. And they do imbue a certain amount of hope and courage just by being present with other people and sharing the compassion of those people's stories. So I strongly recommend them. Um, the, the tasks of aging are, can be handled in a group setting. Um, they can be handled by encouraging people to go to their churches if they have a faith-based uh, framework for meaning, purpose, and connection. If they don't, then connecting them with something that is going to give them meaning, purpose, and connection and having them help you with that is something that can be therapeutically done um, or you can just call a chaplain if you have one in your setting because that's particularly the area in which we are trained. But now let's get back to you. What can you do when you've got the person sitting across the table from you who has just been like Mrs. Wilson? The first thing Mrs. Wilson needs is to be validated. She needs to be heard. So the medical provider in this particular dialogue did the second communication pattern, basically, fled from her comments. We know why. It's not an indictment for the provider. But what we are saying is that the person was not engaged with in terms of where she was. She was shut out. There was no resolution. She may go home feeling resentful. That may build in her. There is no good outcome from that. What's worse is that the person could have um, been met with opposition. And that means someone could have said something as insensitive as, well, shouldn't you be over it by now? He died last year. Isn't your appetite coming back? And making her wrong. That is corrosive. And I'm going to show you some dialogues later on that you might be engaged in and you could use. Um, but the best thing that anybody can do, even if you only have a few minutes, is to listen and validate. And I'm going to show you some responses that you could use to open that up and help that happen. It doesn't add that much time, if any, to a conversation with a patient but they walk out in a much different frame of mind than Mrs. Wilson might have. So what helps? Just your manner can help by staying focused on them, noticing the feelings, acknowledging the feelings. So Mrs. Wilson, let me just give you an example. You're feeling down in the dumps. Do you have any idea why you feel that way? And hear her answer. It may be that that's as far as you can go with it. But another, um, another follow-up question could be after she tells you, do you have any idea what might help you now? Because sometimes the person telling the story can figure it out for themselves. And that, at least, is a first and second layer question that could follow, I've been feeling down in the dumps. 
what about those pills I put you on is the fleeing statement, but it still is a valid statement. If she says, I can't see that they've helped any, finding out is she taking the right dose, is there any potential for a slip up with this in terms of have you been taking it regularly? When did you start taking it? Let's give it another week. Acknowledging at any rate that, you know, that was an intervention that you tried to use. And acknowledging that she's having trouble with it because it really hasn't produced an effect. And you now know that. Your weight is down. Well, it's hard to cook for one. Don't have a reason since my husband died. When did he die, Mrs. Wilson? Did you want to tell me about that? Tell me how you're feeling about that? Um, and take that as far as you can and say, do you think it would be helpful for you to talk to someone about that? Perhaps where you, the facility where you are has a care management team and a social worker could have brought in. Perhaps they have a chaplaincy team and a chaplain could be brought in. Even if you can't be the one they can talk to about that, that is a cry for help right there. Um, my daughter's going through a divorce. I don't believe in divorce. Instead of making some kind of a social pronouncement on how bad the statistics are, say, um, and, and uh, are you involved in talking to her about it? What is your role in this? Is there any role you can play? Is there someone helping you? Is there a counselor involved? Do you want to talk to someone about that? Um, have you been able to talk to your daughter about that? Because again, it's all staying bottled up within her. Um, let's take an, another one of her statements. Um, going to church. She went to a church, obviously. A church is a faith community with a biblical mandate to care for each other. If she can't get to church on her own now, perhaps having someone, a social worker, someone in the office, call her pastor and just let her pastor know that she needs them and she needs that church community and can they help. That is a simple little intervention that can be done by anybody to get her back in the loop of some place where she was feeling connected meaningfully and by a community that has a mandate to care about her. That's a really good scenario and an easy intervention if it can be um, connected again. So I think I'm hoping that you're getting what I'm talking about here. Stay focused on her. Notice the feeling. Validate the feeling. Invite them to say more. Reflect back what they say, <clears throat> summarize what they say, ask what would help. That's pretty simple and could be worked into that exchange, which when you think in terms of what it would do for Mrs. Wilson is priceless. Sometimes there's nothing to say, but a look on your face that shows you're with her and that you feel a great deal of compassion can make a great deal of difference. You can offer your hand. Now I say carefully because some people, that whole thing with touch is not welcome and so forth. But I have people grabbing my hand 
and that connection can be very powerful when it's something they want and you can offer it. Being open and accepting and again sitting with the fact that there's pain here even if you can't fix it. What can hinder are all the things you've probably already had in other courses, the presuming, the judging, the moralizing, the preaching, the giving opinions, the interrupting, the patronizing, the mind reading, trivializing, and the one we saw in this particular exchange, ignoring. Those things are really, really bad, because they can hurt. So we've already talked then on page six about the healing responses. Referral to an appropriate provider. Um, another thing we didn't mention was inquiring about a patient's source of strength, inner strength, something that would produce uh, hope. You don't know if they have anything like that. What are their beliefs and their values and their practices? I ask people that because I never presume they have a faith or don't have it. I just say, do you have any beliefs or values or practices that give you strength? And of course, then referring to an appropriate provider. Now, I really do want feedback at this point. <laughs> Where are we with this? Are you seeing ways that you can now recognize those awkward expressions that we don't know what to do about as spiritual distress and feeling a little bit better about things you might be able to do. Anybody? Yes? Okay, sorry, I didn't want to speak too much if other people wanted to speak, but something that, that occurred to me, and this probably has come to me um, also just from having other conversations with you because I'm fortunate enough to work in the same center as you, um, when you were going through the, the list of what can help and, and what can hinder, what occurred to me is that um, all, of these, all of these techniques or, or this guidance is really coming from the basis of um, understanding that you don't need to solve this person and treating this person as though they already possess everything that's necessary to heal themselves or manage their life or provide what they need to know or, or what they need to do. And I think that's really important because in the helping professions, when people come in to your office and they're really suffering and struggling, it's really easy to feel as though you just want to fix everything for them and then that's frightening that you may not be able to, so you don't go towards them. You it's easier to put up walls. And I just want to say that, that, that I, for me, that's really important that um, where you're coming from of validating and going towards someone and going towards their pain and, and like all of these responses, the helpful responses are all questions to open up and go further. That can be intimidating if the professional is feeling like, I, I, I can't fix this, I don't know what to do, I'm gonna fail. Yeah. And the, the patient can also catch that from the provider. So, yeah. so not doing anything and, and doing as this exchange did, simply ignoring the patient is probably doing harm. I would say it's probably doing harm. It has not inspired the patient's confidence in the provider 
but it has also not contributed anything in terms of what you were saying, their confidence in themselves. Right. It's emphasized being stuck without hope. Mm -hmm. That's what it emphasized. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Any other comments, questions? I hope I'm not seeing a hand in the air um, and missing it, but I don't see anybody. No, okay, all right. Um, well, I do have some statements here, and they all come from a book called I Don't Have to Make Everything All Better. And after all my training in chaplaincy, I ran across this book that wasn't even included in the books that I read. <laughs> about how to be a good listener and how to help empower people by not jumping in and trying to save them. And none of those books ever did the job that this book did. I don't have to make everything all better. It was the best book. I don't think anybody should be allowed out of high school without it, without having read it. Certainly not given a marriage license and definitely not allowed to have children until they read it. But it's also good for every other part of life. I, by the way, full disclosure, I don't know these people. I don't know them at all, and I get no kickback kick from them. But I have bought 10 copies and distributed them to my family members. Um, and things have improved, by the way. It's full of dialogues. It's full of scenarios that you run into every day, and you don't know what to say. And so the damaging responses, either the avoidance, the arguments, the emotion-filled things that you wish you could take back, either they're the way that we play it out or nothing happens. Or you're a skilled person to begin with and you don't need to read the book. But I learned a lot from it. And so some of these were inspired by that. And I do lead a course for RNs and LNAs, um, and we go over this together. And I would like to do it here, but it's a little difficult to have everybody read. We, we do it in teams, and the reason is because you can hear good responses. You hear the bad one, and then right afterwards you hear the good one. And your ear, just doing a small training session here together today, will make a difference. You'll go back to your office and you'll start using some of these. So I would like to try to do that the best I can. Um, could those of you in any of those sites help me with this? Is your mic on? And would you be willing to um, pair up and do three? Well, we'd have everybody do three or four of these, every team of people. Is there any group that would like to turn their mic, mic on and do it with me? Lower left? I don't even know where that is. Well, turn your mic on. If you want to do this with me, please turn your mic on. I'm not hearing anybody. It's going to be up to us. <laughs> All right, are you guys game? Sure. That means you'll have to do quite a few more than three. But this is what this this says, and, and let's have you two do some, and then I'll do some with Keston. Um, do the first page, and one person will read the statement, 
and the other person will respond to that statement with the unhelpful response. And then the person reading the statement will pause a minute and then do the statement again. And the person responding will make the more helpful response. And it's just by going through that. I've done it enough times now so that I know it really works for people. They walk out of here using better responses. So let's, um, let's try that. You get it? Sure. Okay. Well, speak up as you do it. And first you do the round, which is the statement and the unhelpful response. And then you do the round, which is the statement and the more helpful response. And just do the rest of that page. Nobody cares about me. Now speak really loud, okay? Sure. Thank you. It, nobody cares about me. Now look, we are all trying. Nobody cares about me. What makes you say that? And just do the next one. Yeah. I just want to die. We must hope. I just want to die. Why? I'm sick of it all. God hasn't called you yet. I'm sick of it all. What's that about? I'm old and worthless. You shouldn't feel that way. I'm old and worthless. What makes you say that? I'm so depressed. Oh, it's probably your medication. I'm so depressed. What depresses you? I've got nothing to look forward to. At your age, not much. I've got nothing to look forward to. What do you believe? What will I do when mom dies? You'll be fine. Let me tell you about my cousin. What will I do when mom dies? What will you miss so? I'll be lost without my wife. Oh, I bet you'll get married again. I'll be lost without my wife. What will make you feel so lost? I'm so afraid of dying. You're not going to die yet. I'm so afraid of dying. What are you afraid of? Am I dying? Now just don't worry about it. Am I dying? Why do you ask that? And one thing I just want to point out is that these unhelpful responses are full of that list of presuming and judging and moralizing. And Do we do that? I've had, when I have a group of 30 people in here, most of them are laughing as they do this exercise and saying, I just said that to my husband this morning. <laughs> right. It's I'm, really easy to tell your own story, that one that says, let me tell you about my cousin. Yeah. Just get, a, just going right in it and making it about you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Okay. Kesson, are you game to do the rest of them with me? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Which do you want to be, the statement? Um, no, I'll do the responses, if, if that's okay. okay. Does it hurt to die? No, not at all. Does it hurt to die? Are you afraid it will? I feel so bad about my life. Don't say that. You're a good person. I feel so bad about my life. Do you want to tell me what makes you say that? I have so many regrets. Everyone does. I have so many regrets. Do you want to tell me about them? I'm so resentful of my family. They've tried their best. I'm so resentful of my family. What have they done? I'm feeling sad. On a day like this, look at the sun. I'm feeling sad. What is causing your sadness? 
I just miss my husband so much. Life has never been the same. It's been a long time. Don't you think you should be over it by now? I just miss my husband so much. Life has never been the same. Tell me about him, your life together. Thank you. Yeah, and, th and that's, I've had people tell me, and then, you know, there's that pause, and you don't know what to do, and, and I said, thank you so much. I can see why you loved him so much. Yeah. That person was heard. They're validated. Someone knows how nice their husband was. It's a real upper for that person to tell you. I lost my brother five years ago. It happens to everybody. I lost my brother five years ago. Do you want to talk about it? It's not fair this should be happening to me. You'll feel better after a good night's sleep. It's not fair this should be happening to me. You're right. It isn't fair. I'm so sad it happened. I don't know how much longer I can cope. And I don't talk like that. Just make up your mind. You can do it. I don't know how much longer I can cope. You sound discouraged. What would you do if you were me? Well, I would blah, 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 blah. <laughs> what would you do if you were me? What have you done in the past with a hard problem? It's a great question. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a great question. Well, and often they can look back on something that happened, and they can say, yeah. they'll tell it, and then all of a sudden they'll get it. And you know that that question, like we, I was saying earlier, that question is really about someone coming from. You have, I don't have to solve you. You have it. You have. You it. have it. You've lived a long life. You know. You actually know what to do. I love that question. I've got so many worries. Well, maybe you won't soon. <laughs> oh my goodness! I better fix that. Maybe I, you won't be I didn't, here get the, soon. I didn't get the import of that until I started to say it. Was like, wow. <laughs> I'll fix that. <laughs> I've got so many worries. It sounds like you have a lot on your mind. My children are having a hard time. Kids learn by working through it. My children are having a hard time. Well, what could help them? I'm really scared. Don't be. I'm really scared. Why? I'm so tired all the time. Cheer up. You don't have as much to do. I'm so tired all the time. Why is that? I'm having an awful time. So am I. <laughs> <laughs> I'm having an awful time. What happened? These, okay. are, these are really great, Jeannie. These are... <laughs> These are really great. They're simple. They're easy to remember. They're they're really good, and and they're all opening the door. Yeah, and okay. yes, it could be scary if you know you just have fifteen minutes more with that person <laughs> because you know you're gonna have to shut them off. But if you can say, "I'd like to hear a little more," you can control it just just somewhat, mm -hmm. and then you need to follow up with. It sounds like you really could talk about that for quite some time. Would you be interested in having me find you someone you could talk to some more mm -hmm. that would help? That's a hard thing. I just heard a very hard thing, and I don't want to treat it lightly. It's very important. Maybe we can find someone for you to talk to. And of course, once again, a chaplain or a social worker, mm -hmm. they have those skills, and um, it would be good to call them in. Um, we do have a few more minutes, and um, what I'd like to share with you 
is um, there are two things I want to share with you. In Canada, there's a group that's put together, it's called the Manitoba Healthcare. Um, I'll read it to you here. Spiritual Healthcare Strategic Plan in Manitoba, Canada. And they have made a very good defining statement about spiritual healthcare practice. And I'm going to read it to you, if I may. Spiritual healthcare involves a recovery of the patient as a person, upholding his or her beliefs and experiences, and addressing matters of meaning and hope. As one person in the service of another, spiritual healthcare is therefore literally therapeutic and not an attempt to impose or intervene or control. In other words, chaplains and social workers don't tell you what to do, what to believe. That's called spiritual abuse. <laughs> they try, there's nothing imposed. It's therapeutic for them, however, to help you access your own beliefs. This recovery of the patient as a person extends to all human beings in the middle of meaning making. Wait a minute. This recovery of the patient as a person extends to all human beings in the middle of me making meaning of this existence. There are none of us that don't need that. This includes atheists, non-theists, agnostics, spiritually focused religious followers, essentially any human being who identifies this quest for meaning, as well as those individuals who do not identify any such quest. And I thought it was very important to point out something that I had actually on one of these pages, which I did already read to you, which is people seeking care, people coming into your office may not always have the language or means to express the origin or reality of their own spiritual need, but they may have the indicators. So that's why they need us to help pull out from them what's going on. The authors of Making Healthcare Whole, and that is another book on the bibliography by Christina Polkowski, state, a human being is a spiritual being. When injured or ill, human beings naturally ask transcendent questions about meaning, value, and relationship. If providing holistic care is a moral duty, then that duty extends to the spiritual as well as the physical. Therefore, attending to the spiritual needs of patients is not just a moral option. It constitutes a moral imperative. The moral and ethical imperative of holistic care forms the core of this strategic plan. The need to incorporate spiritual health care into professional practice is increasingly based on spiritual and religious diversity and being fundamental to a multicultural society. So if you're reading another book, I would recommend Making Healthcare Whole. And um, there's another book about listening, The Art of Listening in a Healing Way by James Miller. And there's a lot of research by Harold Koenig 
who is the second entry on that list, Spirituality in Patient Care, Why, How, When, and What. And the last book there is for um, medical providers, and it's actually got a CD connected with it, and you can read and you can listen to it and actually hear what it sounds like to be um, engaging people on a spiritual level in your practice. It's what do I say, talking to patients about spirituality. So thank you very much. I hope this has been helpful, and I appreciate your attention. If you have any questions, I've provided um, my email address and my phone number. I welcome them from you. Have a nice day. Thank you.